And uh, today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, looking at the flood story. Bill started us off last week, and he went through verses, uh, I think it was 1 through 9. And so I'm going to pick up where he left off there in Genesis chapter 6. We're actually going to be looking at the rest of Genesis chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. I'm not planning on reading the whole thing, but we want to talk about it. Um, So yeah, actually, I'm starting at verse 9 in Genesis chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Pretty high praise here being accorded to Noah in verse 9. Interestingly enough, there are only three people, to my knowledge, that are explicitly stated in the Scriptures to have walked with God. Now, we can assume there were more than just three. (laughs) But there's three that are explicitly stated. One is Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Uh, God took him when he was just a spring chicken, only 365 years old. (laughs) He went to be with God, and now we're told that Noah walked with God. And then in Malachi chapter 2, Levi is said to have walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for behold, The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So here we are given the reason for the judgment. Because the earth is filled with corruption and the earth is filled with violence. I like what Gordon Wenham had to say about the word violence here in Genesis chapter 6. Violence doesn't just denote physical violence, which is usually what I think of people killing each other, beating each other up. He says violence um, denotes any antisocial and neighborly activity. Very often it involves the use of brute force, but it may just be the exploitation of the weak by the powerful or the poor by the rich or the naive by the clever. And that kind of violence is going on very much so today. And we have a, a fair amount of physical violence as well, unfortunately. So God tells Noah he's going to judge the earth. Now, in the rest of chapter 6, God tells Noah how he wants to build the ark, how he wants to bring the animals into the ark. All right. Noah did everything that God told him to do. And then beginning in chapter 7, we read, Then the Lord said to Noah, so I'm at chapter 7, verse 1. I'm skipping a little bit. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark. You and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now, at first glance, what he's telling Noah to do here in Genesis chapter 7 might seem a little bit redundant. Because in chapter 6, he tells Noah to bring all the animals into the ark. And now here in chapter 7, he's talking about these clean animals. Why, why does Noah need to bring these extra clean animals on the ark? And the answer is he's going to sacrifice them. 
So Noah, first of all, he knows the distinction between clean and unclean, but after the flood's over, he's going to sacrifice these animals, and if he doesn't have extra, that's going to be the extinction of those animals. So it's not really a redundancy. That's why the author has made sure to let us know what's going on. Let me pick up, I think it was at verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And we're told that it was flooding or raining uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, what's interesting is at the very end of chapter 7, so verse 24, he talks about how, how the waters have risen. They're above the peaks of the highest mountains. And every living thing is being blotted out with possibly the exception of the sea animals. All right. Then at the very end of chapter 7, we read, And the waters prevailed on earth 150 days. So the question comes to your mind, possibly, well, was the flood 40 days and 40 nights, or was it 150 days? Well, we have 150 days where the waters are said to prevail upon the earth, all right? The first 40 is the first phase of the flood. You get the heavy rainfall in those 40 days and 40 nights, and then for the next 110 days, those waters are prevailing, meaning they're not going down. They have triumphed over the earth. And really what we see here in Genesis chapter 7 at this point is the earth kind of returning to the way it looked at the very beginning of the creation story. When the earth is described as being formless and void. And so here we see again the earth has become a, I think in Hebrew the phrase is tohu wabohu, an uninhabitable wasteland as if God really has just hit the reset button. So what we've got here, the main theme we're dealing with in chapter 6 and chapter 7 is the theme of divine judgment. And people today have a big problem. Well, some people, I should say, have, a, have an issue with divine judgment. Now, interestingly enough, I don't think people have as big a problem with judgment on the human plane. Uh, the political commentary slash comedian Bill Maher says he was doing a show recently and he was talking about the travesty of January 6th and everything going wrong on January 6th and he says to his audience, what should we do with those Trump supporters because he's very left-leaning, of course. And he says his audience answered without hesitation, kill him. And I don't know if they were joking. You know, there are, there's plenty of people that would be more than willing to liquidate their political opposition. They think they'd be doing the earth a favor. Well, what's interesting is when these same people come to the scripture and they read about God doing the same thing, well, all of a sudden they get very hot and bothered about all this. <laughs> you know, we, we can do it, but God, we're not so sure that we should give you the right to do it. And of course, when we bring, if they have a problem with destruction in Genesis chapter 6, where the main penalty being presented is physical death, well, you better believe when we get into the New Testament, 
and we start talking about the divine judgment that will happen at the end of human history, well, then now they have a real problem because the stakes are a lot higher. We're not just talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death. And as Bill pointed out last week, the authors of the New Testament, when they were talking about this final judgment that is going to occur at the end of human history, they would draw on the flood story. He looked at it in 1 Peter. He looked at it in 2 Peter. And they drew that comparison. And so we have to deal with the reality of hell. If, if we want to take what the scriptures have written seriously. And there's no getting around the horrific nature of hell, folks. We're just not going to get around the terrible, horrific nature of what hell is. We can't water it down. We can't candy coat it. It's going to make it palatable. <laughs> but the doctrine is not absurd. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference between saying this is a horrific, terrifying reality and saying that it's just plain absurd. It's not absurd. Now, if we want to get to the heart of the matter, we need to ask two questions about hell. First of all, we need to ask the question, what is the fundamental nature of hell? And the second question we need to ask, and this one I think gets neglected a little bit too much, is what is the fundamental characteristic of the damned? So when we talk about hell, there's two primary images the Bible uses to describe hell. One is darkness, and the other is fire. And some people take these images to be symbolic. Some people take them to be literal. This is one of the, in my opinion, stupid things Christians argue about. Because, listen, even if you take, I take them to be symbolic myself, but look, they're not symbols for cotton candy and ice cream. I mean, the, the, the point is, it's, it's horrifying. But when we're getting down to it, this is what hell is like. But what we're trying to get at is, but what is it about hell that makes it hell? What's the defining characteristic? And for that, I think we should go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. So let me try to make my way to 2 Thessalonians. Oh, I think I've got it right here. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. By the way, there's one description of the condemned. They don't know God. They might say they do, but they don't. And those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here is verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the essence right there. Away from the presence of the Lord. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to think of the most beautiful place you can possibly imagine. So Bill over there, he's thinking about a lake right now. And you're thinking, like, that's where I, this is the most beautiful, fun place that you could possibly imagine. You say to yourself, that's where I want to be when I'm dead. And let's say an angel takes you up to the place just as you imagine it in your mind. Every little detail is in place. He says, there's just one catch. God isn't here. If you have any sense in your mind, you are going to make, you're going to run in the opposite direction as fast as your legs can carry you because that place is hell. 
Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's what hell actually looks like. <laughs> it's not a beautiful place. And we'll get into that. But, but the essence of hell is God's not there. You're away from the presence of the Lord. That's the issue. Now, the second thing we want to talk about is the people that are condemned. What, what is the defining characteristic of these folks? Let's dig into the scriptures again. I want to start with Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be looking at one, verses 1 through 3. Let's see what this New Testament has to say about uh, what it's like to be under judgment. Now, incidentally, of course, Paul is not writing to people he believes are condemned. He's, he's writing to folks who have accepted the gospel, but he's talking about what they were like before, right? So he says, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he tells us they are dead in their trespasses and sins. He tells us they are sons of disobedience. He tells us they live in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of their body. In other words, this is not a case, folks, and this is what frustrates me. When the condemned are presented as people who are sincere, they're humble and loving, but sorry, you were born in the wrong religion. And because you failed the orthodoxy tests, you just get eternity in hell. Nowhere in the, in the Bible, if you're going to go by the scripture, are the damned presented in that fashion. I'm sorry. They are not presented as loving, sincere, humble people who have been misinformed. They are never presented in that fashion. Let's go take a look at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they have done. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 through 8, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for, now he's describing the condemned here, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. This is not nice people. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I've yet to talk about the what's the defining characteristic. What do all these folks have in common? They don't have everything in common. Some of them are murderers. Some of them are liars. Some of them are sorcerers. Some of them are cowardly. But what do they all have in common? And it's this church. They all reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Every last one of them reject the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate sin right there. That's what they all have in common. And you can see this in, in John, in uh, John chapter 3. This is one of uh, the passages in Scripture that makes the point I'm trying to make the strongest. John chapter 3, verse 18. I'm looking at verse 16. Let's see, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so now let's take a look at what these people are like. We're told they don't believe in the name of the Son of God. What are they like? Look at the very next verse. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. See how they are described? They love darkness. Their deeds are evil. They do not want to come to the light. That's how they're described. And at the very end of John, he makes this link between belief and obedience explicit. Or sorry, John chapter 3. In verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, rejects the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right. So that's the defining characteristic of the condemned. And now we want to take a look at a couple more passages in Luke. There's one I'm not going to dig into very deeply. It's Luke 19, verse... uh, Well, let me just read a couple of these verses. Sorry, Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 14. Where again, their rejection of Christ is explicitly stated in the Scripture. um, It starts in verse 11 with the parable of the ten minas. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They have rejected him. And then the last one I'm going to look at, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse is Luke chapter 16. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. This is Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed uh, in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, so he's not having a good time, by the way, just just so we're all clear on that, hell is not a place where all the party animals go after death and party together. He's in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, And Lazarus at his side and called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. And Tim Mackey pointed something out about this parable to me that I'd never thought before. And this happens. I'm sure you guys can relate. Somebody will point something out to you and think, why in the world have I never thought about this? But he said, you know what? That first question that this guy asks is really strange if you think about it for just a second. Because he's in hell and he's in torment. And you would think the question that he would ask is, Abraham, pull me out of here. (laughs) He doesn't ask to leave. You notice that? He doesn't ask to leave. He doesn't take one step towards Abraham. But he says, Abraham, that loser, Lazarus, he's totally unrepentant. 
that bum, send that bum to me to give me a little bit of relief. That's all he wants. He doesn't want to be in Abraham's bosom. He just wants Lazarus to give him a little bit of relief. This is the damned, folks. This is what they're like. And if you're sitting here saying, you know, that seems kind of fantastical to me that people would choose hell over heaven. Folks, happens all the time. You know, uh, Craig here, he recommended a book to me called The Great Evangelical Recession by John Dickerson. I think you should make all the elders read that book. I won't put pressure on you. Uh, there's a story at the end of that book. It's a great book uh, where the, the writer talks about his interaction with a drug addict, okay, a gal named Mickey. Listen to what he has to say about this gal in his book. Mickey's wounds were tragic. Her history was tragic. Her shriveling body and life were tragic. But the most tragic moment came toward the end of my time with her. In the course of writing the story, I had talked to the best addiction recovery center in the state. They had agreed to take on Mickey for free. Mickey, who wanted nothing more than to be free from heroin, had a choice to make. She could choose recovery and, like many other addicts, live a normal life, or she could continue in her slavery, a course that meant sure death. At her desperate urging, I arranged for Mickey's choice to be as easy as possible. All she had to do was step into a vehicle. All she had to do was agree, and the best help was hers for free. The day came for Mickey to make her choice. Despite her pleas for help, despite her descriptions of a life in hell, she refused to leave the drug house. People choose hell all the time. And what's especially frightening is when people don't know they've done it. I want to take a look one more passage in Luke. Luke chapter 13. verse I want, I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. That's Luke chapter 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And this is where I would have loved to hear Jesus just say, nope. <laughs> That's what I want him to say. But what does the scripture say? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house is risen and shut the door and begin to stand outside, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Now listen, folks. I don't think this dress, uh, sorry, this verse, it is, it is addressing people who are kind of down and out and discouraged right now, maybe having doubts about where you stand with God. You're hurting. You're struggling. I don't think these words are addressed to you, okay? And I'm not going to address my words to you, so... Bear that in mind. I don't want to beat up on people. Jesus said he wasn't going to quench a smoking flax or, or break a bruised reed. This is, this, is this is written to presumptuous people. That's what we're talking about here. People that presume that they know Jesus Christ, but they don't. 
The kind of people say, well, you know what? I have no doubt about my salvation. Well, that could be good or it could be really bad. If you have no doubt because you genuinely have assurance, that's a great thing. And the Bible says you can have that assurance, and that's wonderful. But if you're just being presumptuous, you're in a dangerous place. So when people, this is just me personally, when people tell me they don't doubt, I say that doesn't impress me much, like the great theologian Shania Twain once said. What we need to do is say, okay, but what does the word of God say about assurance? Not what tradition says, not what popular preaching says. What does the word of God have to say about this subject? And fortunately, there's a book that, that deals with this at some length. It's 1 John. Now, the reason that 1 John is such a good book to go to along these lines is because in all likelihood, that letter, what occasioned that letter was a split in the church. You had a church that there was a schism. It split and went in two different ways. And naturally, that raises the question, which one of these groups has got the truth, right? And so, John, when you read that letter, he, you, you see him saying over and over again, this is how we know. And so let's take a look at 1 John. And, and uh, I'm, I can't go through the whole, the whole, I could, I won't. I'm not going to go through the whole letter, but let me just hit some of the highlights here. So, for example, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's, there's belief. And Baptists love this verse because Baptists, they love themselves belief. <laughs> they want to talk about belief and nothing but belief. But you need, to, you need to understand belief in the context of the entire letter, folks. All right? When you go to same book, 1 John chapter 2. All right? Chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for, um, sorry, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Now, let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Okay, first of all, when he's talking about commandments in 1 John, I would argue he has principally uh, two things in mind. He's not talking about the Old Testament law. Uh, if you go to uh, same letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, he writes, And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So when you see that command, that's what he's talking about. Now, the second thing that's very encouraging to me is he obviously does not expect his congregation to live sinless lives. Because when you look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he, he, he just explicitly states, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father. So that's good news, because I would be in big trouble if you... We're supposed to live a sinless life. But here's the deal, folks. We can't use verses 1 and 2 to erase verses, <laughs> verses 3 through 5. And he has a clear expectation for these Christians. He's saying, if, if this is real, you will be applying these commandments to your life. You won't be neglecting them. You won't be ignoring them. You will be applying to them. However imperfectly that might play out in our own individual lives, you will not be ignoring them. And he says, if you're just ignoring this commandment, he, the words he uses is, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Now, those are heavy words, uh, granted, okay? 
But when we're talking about this issue of spiritual inventory, we should take spiritual inventory. We've got to be careful how we do it. <laughs> you know, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, for example, someone said, give me support uh, from the Bible and we need to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul talking to the Corinthian church. They were pushing on him saying, Paul, we're not so sure you're a real apostle. <laughs> and Paul says, well, why don't you guys examine yourselves <laughs> and test to see if you're in the faith? All right. But what you don't want to do or what I would not recommend in doing is making a laundry list of your sins every night and trying to rehearse them all to God. I mean, please don't do that. <laughs> That's not going to do you any good. and It's going to give you a totally distorted picture of who God is. It's not it's not helpful. All right. But but the things that people normally go to immediately when they think about, OK, I got to take spiritual inventory. So I got to I got to see if there's some sin in my life that I'm that I'm committing. Um, you know, am I sexually immoral? Am I an alcoholic? And then I got to look at, am I reading the Bible enough? And am I, am I praying enough? Now, by the way, uh, when it comes to reading the Bible, the Bible is woefully neglected in the church, okay? But, but here's, here's the deal about these things. I was listening to Tommy Tyson preach a sermon uh, just a while back, and he said he met this guy who was an alcoholic, all right? And during the course of their time together, this alcoholic became sober. And Tommy said, you know what? I liked him a lot better when he was a drunk. <laughs> because, because when he became sober, he became insufferably self-righteous. Now, folks, the devil will be glad to cure your, uh, your alcohol problem to give you a self-righteous problem. He'll do that for you. Okay, but that's, that's, not, evidence that you, that's not evidence that you're born again. And, uh, and when it comes to praying and reading the Bible, and I want to be so careful here because I don't want anybody to say, oh, Pastor Al has given us a pass. We don't have to read or pray the Bible. Please don't think I'm saying that. Uh, but, but the Pharisees read their Bible too, folks. And the Pharisees prayed too, folks. And the Pharisees engaged in missions. The Bible says they'd go over land and sea to make one convert. And here's the thing I want to point out. All of these things that I pointed out, they don't have much to do with your neighbor, do you? Do they? I mean, they might if you're interceding. But the whole, the whole commandment I was supposed to be looking at was loving one another. And this is all about me. How much do I read the Bible? How much do I pray? How much sin do I have in my life? Where, where, where's your blessed neighbor, folks? I like what Jack Deere said about this. He said, you want to know how close your walk is with Christ? I'll tell you a great test. And this is a great test. He says, how do you respond when someone wrongs you? When someone does you wrong, turn who is a Christian. When someone who offends you who is a church-going member, how do you respond? That'll tell you more about your relationship with Jesus than just about anything else because immediately what we want to do is retaliate because that feels good and it feels right. I mean, I was in a, a meeting a while back where some, some folks were upset and they had good reason to be upset, church. I'm not saying they didn't have reason to be upset, but I want to tell you the resentment in that room was so thick you could eat it. And some of these folks, I mean, these are church-going folks. Some of these folks, even after they were told, look, you've got a lot of bitterness and a lot of resentment, their, their response was basically, and I'm going to hold on to it until I get mine. You know, like, I'll hold on to that resentment until the Lord returns. Well, you better not be holding on to it when he returns. Now, now here's, here's the deal, church. The response to this is not, well, i got to pull up my sleeves and start working real hard. Okay, the response is to say, Lord Jesus, this is who I am without your grace. And I need you to do a work in my heart. See, I, I know how these people feel because in my flesh I feel exactly the same way. And apart from God's grace, that's all I am. That's all I've got apart from your grace, Jesus. But here's the deal. If the Holy Spirit's in your life, he's not going to let you get away with that. 
He's not going to let you get away with the resentment. He's not going to let you get away with the bitterness, no matter how sure of your salvation you are. And the second thing that I would say, another good test, is how often do I look down on folks? You know, this is one thing about the Pharisees that made Jesus super upset, is they went around looking down on everybody. When Jesus said, you know what, you need to take care of the beam in your eye before you take care of the speck in your neighbor's eye, you know what that beam is? That beam is self-satisfaction and an inflated sense of self-superiority that you get by looking down on other people. It could be moral superiority, spiritual superiority. I'm a better Christian than you. I'm more committed than you. It could be theological superiority. You're a Muslim. I'm not, and I'm proud of it. Why? You were saved by grace. Why are you proud of it? Were you not saved by grace? Was that your doing? Then why are you looking down on Muslims? I'm not saying I agree with them. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. They don't. I believe he was the son of God. They don't. But why we got to look down on them, folks, if we're saved by grace? What right do we have? And you think that's going to convert anybody? Probably not. I got to say, you know what? I'm not going to talk bad about anybody. I'm not going to look down on anybody. I'm not stop. The, the command was not to be better than your neighbor. The command was to love your neighbor, to give up this whole competition thing. My identity is in Christ. I'm a child of the King and I'm loved by him. And that's good enough. I don't need to be better than anybody. And I don't want to be. I want to love my neighbor, not be better than my neighbor. That is the Holy Spirit, folks, working in your life. You live in like that, you're not going to be worried about your salvation. I guarantee it. You're not going to be thinking about it. And the last thing I want to point out, and there's, there's plenty of things I could go to, one more thing, is gratitude. This one is about you and God. The, the first two I pointed out was you and your neighbor. This one's you and God. You know, uh, gratitude. There is no law against gratitude, folks. <laughs> Did you know that? Did you know you can be just as thankful as you want to be all the time? <laughs> and there is no law against it. And God loves it. He inhabits the praises of his people. Amen. And we need to take time throughout our day, every day, to be still and know that he's God and say, thank God that you're God. Thank God that you're good. Thank God that you've forgiven me. Thank God that you are. I tell you what, you got that in your life, you're not going to be biting your nails about whether or not you belong to Jesus. It's just not going to happen. Okay? And as I, as I close this morning, I'm going to... Actually, when I pray today, I'm going to read a prayer that I found that I think is just a wonderful prayer. It's not mine, but I want to pray it over us anyway. And I just want to encourage you, you know that, that alcoholic that I was talking about earlier that got over his, his drunkenness? You know, he, he didn't have the right goal, folks. His goal was to be sober. Now, that's a good goal. That, that is a good goal. But you know what? If his goal had been this, Jesus, I want you to reveal yourself to me. I want to know who you are, and I want you to live in me. Jesus would have answered that prayer, and Jesus would have taken care of that alcohol problem too, but without giving him a, a dose of self-righteousness. John says, whoever has the Son has life, and that's the goal. All right. Bow your heads with me as I pray. Our Heavenly Father, knowing that you are the God of love, giver of every good and perfect gift, 
and that your love is the greatest of all drawing powers, infinite, eternal, and irresistible, drawing all things into perfect harmony and perfect fulfillment. We give ourselves completely into your hands. Take us, mold us, shape us into channels for expressing your will. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and Spirit of God, come and fall upon your people. Amen.